When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. Santosh, did you see the new Spider-Man trailer? As long as we're talking friendly neighborhood things. <laughs> I, I haven't. No, I stay away from trailers and spoilers because I want to see the movie fresh. I You're going to be a little mad at me. I'm a little behind in my MCU, so I got to go Shang-Chi and Eternals before I do anything with Spidey. Oh, okay. Shang-Chi is, is great too, but you know what all of those superhero movies have in common? Well, up until recently, rest in peace, Stan Lee would do a cameo. Fair enough. Uh, but also <laughs> they have people who are very strong smacking each other around, and some of those on the receiving end do not have healing powers. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So we've talked about this a little bit before, like comic book medicine, how to deal with injuries and superpowered people. And you introduced me to the very cool character Night Nurse from Marvel Comics. And the best part is her superpower is just she paid attention. That's yeah. it. <laughs> just, just physical, yeah. you know, she's, <laughs> she is a nurse practitioner, effectively. So, yeah, yeah. so there, she, Marvel <laughs> thinks we're superheroes, or at least they think nurses are. And they are, in a, in but, a pretty big way. But yeah. this isn't about uh, the comic aspect of it, but that anyone in that epic of fight on a regular basis, be they Shang-Chi, right. Wolverine, Cap, whoever, is going to need some kind of healing and probably some pain management afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So medication for pain, techniques... And things like this, like stretching and massage and all of these that are non-pharmaceutical. Yeah. And anything and everything that you can do to actually accelerate your healing. I will take this out of the fictional realm a little bit, Josh, to modern, like a little bit of sports medicine. So for instance, running backs in football who routinely get the crap kicked out of them on, you know, Sundays or Mondays or whatever, whenever they play, and they have to do a recovery so they can be ready for next week. And we have actually found that with rehab science and pain science, that those athletes are able to perform for longer with less injury if they adhere to these, you know, kind of newer modalities and recommendations. You know, more athletes and sports need capes. <laughs> you'd, you'd watch the hell out of, like, the Tennessee Titans if they were giants, 
You know, just like with capes on. I'd watch you? the hell out of tennis if it had capes on. <laughs> like Bjorn Borg with a cape? Yeah. <laughs> just That brings us around to this week's topic, which is going to be part of a series on physiatry and pain management and all the things under that field. So before I go into any more history, we were lucky enough to get a expert in the field. And Santosh, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, I'd like to introduce my dear friend, Dr. Avinash Ramchandani, MD, MBA. And Avi and I were actually roommates at Rosalind Franklin uh, University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago. And after he graduated, uh, he uh, actually went off to Stanford and studied uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation is the official title, PMNR, at Stanford University Hospitals and Clinics, Palo Alto. He completed that program and then went on to Oregon Health Sciences University over in Portland to specialize in pain management, Uh, did a brief stint in Texas, and now he's back home in his native Northern California practicing uh, pain management and care for acute and chronic pain patients. Thank you, Santos, and thank you, Josh, for having me on here. And thank you for that great introduction. (laughs) So before we get too deep into your particular specialty, uh, let's talk very briefly about the general field of physiatry. It doesn't just mean I'm mispronouncing the word physician. Or (laughs) or psychiatry, as many people say. Oh, is that one too? Oh, that's another one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, It originally, the word therapy itself derives from the ancient Hebrew word refua, which meant healing, uh, R-E-F-U-A. Rough transliteration. Mm, yeah. Uh, Chinese employed, it's, I'm going to mispronounce it, but only because you're going to hear something different. And uh, <laughs> Chinese employed a movement therapy known as Kung Fu, not Kung, Kung Fu, Fu, right? Kung Fu, C-O-N-G, Fu to relieve pain. <laughs> Think like Tai Chi or one of those kinds. Of, it's It was a specific art meant for physical movement and therapy. Uh, so this would, would it be closer to like Qigong yeah. that you would perform? Yeah, that'd be maybe around uh, in the same family. Okay, gotcha. Uh, moving around the world from the Middle East to the Far East, back into the West, Greek physician Herodotus described an elaborate system of gymnastic exercises for prevention and treatment of disease. And, you know, of course, Greece is where the Olympics started. People who exercised so much, they literally dropped dead. Whereas Galen, (laughs) the Roman physician Galen, looked more to rehabilitate military injuries. And finally, we come right back around to diet and movement in the Middle Ages when Maimonides, the philosopher physician, which is a title I think we should bring back. I want to be a philosopher. I guess I'd be a PhD. Uh, too much work. <laughs> yeah, no. The- <laughs> too much work. Forget it. Not worth yeah, it. There's there's a bunch of us around. There are <laughs> neurologists and ID doctors. We all philosophize. I know, but I want to hear you guys addressed as philosopher physician. It just has that <laughs> Hogwarts ring to it. Yeah, it's kind of like warrior poet. It's the perfect little marriage. Of- yes. Yes, we need more warrior poets and philosopher physicians around. Mm. Uh, Well, anyway, Maimonides, who was just such one of these philosopher physicians, would emphasize back again in Hebrew the Talmudic principles of healthy exercise and diet. So that is, you know, eat this root, take this pill, no, eat this root, all the way full circle, but for exercise. So what happened in physiatry next. Where does that bring us today? Today, we have physiatrists that's or physiatrists that are still called psychiatrists, unfortunately. <laughs> but we're now a board certified specialty for some time now, about 50 years. And um we've been specializing more and more. Now we have pain management, which actually came aboard just about 15 years ago, I think. And then recently we've had brain brain injury, which is another specialty within pain management, and sports medicine also. They're now specialties within within physiatry. So pretty cool that we've had so many different ev- evolutions of physiatry with time. Now, why would and a brain injury specifically affect your ability to manage pain? If you had a brain injury, you probably wouldn't be able to manage your pain too well because you wouldn't understand how 
to process the pain in your brain. So coming from like a sports medicine angle, you know, there was a lot of to do about uh, football players knocking heads, resulting in some rather long-term effects. Would you expect to see any of uh, those guys come in with traumatic brain pain injuries? Oh, this is going to be a tongue twister episode. Traumatic <laughs> brain pain. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> so meaning that if they've if they've harmed the parts of their brain that actually process pain signals finally, so would they suffer long-term pain even though there wasn't like a noxious signal? So for instance, it, it's not that the arm was actually broken. It's just that the brain would be misfiring and having these kind of signals just go and go saying to you, Oh, your right. arm hurts, your arm hurts, like this kind of thing. Is, is that a possibility? Yeah. So the thalamus is the part of the brain that actually processes pain, right? So if you injure the thalamus, then part of the brain or part of the pain signals won't be getting to the brain properly. So that actually can be a part of what's called central pain syndrome, where someone gets injured, a stroke or brain injury or something like that. And they actually develop pain on one side of the body, the opposite side of the thalamus that was actually injured. So that's actually a syndrome that can happen. Now, you can also have headaches, which are quite common after having traumatic brain injury. Now, that mechanism is different because the whole brain is shaken. And essentially, patients can have headaches because of trauma to the meninges or potentially to any other part of the brain. So Headaches are quite common and are very hard to treat after a brain injury. Because traditionally, when I think of of pain management, I'm thinking more maybe aside from traumatic injuries, which are, you know, I was hit by a literal truck or a linebacker, you take your pick. I think more of diabetic neuropathy. So the pain we see from long-term microcirculation damage, a lot of different kinds of pain, enough to warrant its own field, physiatry and, and pain management. Are they part of the same field? Or are they two different specialties now? They are two, sort of two different specialties. So people in pain management, which are, we get fellowship trained in pain management, they can come from four different specialties. So you can have a physiatrist that's a pain management specialty. You can have an anesthesiologist that's a pain management specialty. You can have a neurologist that does a pain medicine specialty, or you could have a psychiatrist who does a pain medicine specialty. Oh, yes. well, see, that's just cheating since a lot of them I get know. called it anyway. That hardly <laughs> seems fair. <laughs> so, you know, the funny thing about, about pain management is that in our training, we not only learn about managing pain with medicines, we actually manage pain with injections, surgeries, things like that. So if you ever want a psychiatrist to do surgery on you, Find a psychiatrist that does pain management. Uh, uh, this question, Avi. So obviously the art of pain management then is kind of taking all the modalities that we think of, pharmaceutical, non-pharmaceutical, all the things that Josh talked about historically and, and coming to modern times and helping a person um, either deal with or modulate or get rid of the source of their pain. Do you feel you had any kind of specific, not maybe not unique, but coming from a physiatry standpoint versus a person who would come from one of the other disciplines and come to pain? So the advantage of being a physiatrist is that we understand the body a little bit better than anesthesia in certain ways, because most of us Despite us, me saying that, you know, there's neurologists and psychi psychiatrists that go into pain management, most of us are either physiatrists or anesthesia. That being said, being a physiatrist, we do a lot of musculoskeletal work, sports medicine work, EMGs. So we understand the body a lot more than an anesthesiologist who hasn't done that type of work. Physiatrists have a little bit of a different perspective in that sense. Now, the disadvantages to physiatrists, and this isn't all of us, but some of us don't have the training to do surgery as well. So when we come out of our residency, we don't do the surgeries as well. We can't do, we don't put in lines during residency. We don't intubate patients during during the residency. So when we come out of residency, we have a little bit less experience with procedures. And that is a little bit of a disadvantage, but hopefully the fellowship has made up for that so that we learn all those things that we haven't learned in residency. And so by the end of fellowship, we all are kind of the same, I hope. Do you find yourself intubating patients a lot in your field? 
<laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> okay, because I was about to say, I, I have a very different understanding of what you do. Yeah, no. Uh, Doctor, Anna, I have a headache. All right, count back from 10. <laughs> so I do give anesthesia, but I okay. don't have to intubate patients. So that's a little bit different, right? When I, give, when I do a procedure for a patient, sometimes I have to give them anesthesia because the procedure can be pretty painful. Like we do radiofrequency ablations. We actually heat up nerves in order to help their pain. If that's the case, that's going to hurt. So we give anesthesia for that. So we give a little bit of Versed and fentanyl usually or something of the sort that we can, you know, give them a little calmness and a little pain relief. But if we need to do any type of surgery where we're cutting into the patient, sometimes we will use a little bit more than that where we actually get an anesthesiologist to intubate the patient or give them more anesthesia like propofol which we can't give anymore by ourselves unfortunately okay. and, but that's <sighs> that seems to be the same type of anesthesia that you think of with kind of like any procedure that's correct got it but right. okay. we can't give propofol because one we're not anesthesiologists and michael jackson happened <laughs> <laughs> we'll get... <laughs> uh, we're gonna put we're gonna put just the teeniest bit of context in Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because hashtag stuff Michael Jackson has ruined. Is a, <laughs> well, that's a also, weird for this episode. Also, yeah, I think there's an entire TikTok generation who's not gonna understand the reference that we just made. <laughs> oh, that, makes me sound that sad. just happened yeah. during my. I think that happened during my fellowship. No. Yeah, was, was it, it happened while I was in fellowship. While I was in Oregon. 2010s. Yes, 2010. I think it was 2010 or 2011. One of the two. Josh, do we have like babies watching our? <laughs> well, no. your your 15 year old is not going to understand that because they were five. Because they were five away. at the time. I get it. I get it. Fire away, Josh. Context us. So uh, Michael Jackson, the king of pop, uh, suffered a accident during a Pepsi commercial. And then got addicted to painkillers. And ultimately, mm -hmm. how he was passed away was from an overdose of one particular anesthetic painkiller, propofol, that he became uh, rather dependent on. That is, that is the highlights. You can go Wikipedia or listen to music history podcasts for all the rest of it. No, th there's a lot to unpack with Michael Jackson. But yes, one of them, yeah. unfortunately, was his very tragic death. Um, but... but involved in propofol yeah however uh let's let's circle back around to something you mentioned about using needles and or diagnosing pain because a lot of the reasons that i may send somebody to physiatry would be for an emg especially if i have no clue what's going on with their pain if someone just has pain that i have no clear medical explanation for, and there's a wide variety of things that may cause that, then we need to diagnose that pain. And one of the things that we can use for that purpose is EMG or electromyography. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? And then I'll uh, see what sort of historical trivia and nuggets I can dig up. EMG is a test that we do. It's actually an Electromyelogram and nerve conduction studies, usually those are done together. The electromyelogram is actually where we stick a needle into the muscle. Uh, yeah, lots of needles. We use lots of needles. We like needles. Um, so we stick a needle into the muscle to see how the muscle is functioning. And normal electromyelograms are, you know, the needle functions and, and you get sort of a spike on the on the needle. But if the if it if the muscle's at rest, you don't get a spike. And if you move it, then you get a spike. Sometimes if you have an abnormal muscle, you'll actually see different things. So you might see that it's spiking without any reason, or when you're actually doing a muscle contraction, it spikes differently. So in, in brief, that's an electromyelogram. Now, what we actually do is we actually send some electrical signals from the muscle to the machine. Now, a nerve conduction study is where we actually put a, a electrical signal on the nerve that sends that electrical signal from the, or through that nerve to another site, which is a pickup site. And so we can actually tell how the nerve is functioning. So there's two parts of the what we 
typically call an EMG study. It's actually an EMG nerve conduction study. So that is a brief overview. So one, the the buzz goes from the muscle to the machine, and the other, it goes from the machine through the nerve. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Okay. So let's briefly talk about where they came from. Nerve conduction studies began when von Muschenbrück invented the Leyden jar to store electricity. I'm so glad he invented a simpler named jar. I, I couldn't <laughs> say the Muschenbrück jar. The Leyden jar had was essentially the very first modern battery. We know there were ancient batteries from ancient Egypt, but Galvani, creator of galvanism, reported that sparks from one of these Leyden jars that landed on a frog sciatic nerve accidentally produced muscle contractions. And so Mm. to further investigate that, he laid a copper hook right through the frog's spinal nerves. So it was a conducting material. And then when it contacted iron, he saw the frog move and react. And this is, you know, in theory, we got a couple very famous characters from these experiments on galvanism. And that's a whole other episode itself. But do you want to take a guess who they were? Okay, uh, Benjamin Franklin? No. The Game Frogger. The Game Frogger. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of... These would be neurologists working maybe in France. So I'm trying to remember uh, some of the folks who were famous during that time who actually worked on... Electrochemical conduction, but I don't I'll think it's any what, of those. Is it? I'll give yeah. you, I'll give you a hint to one of the characters, since you're very hung up on frogs. Okay, I'll tell you, it's an older uh, fictional figure, not quite as animated or singing and dancing. A fictional figure that's not animated. Well, really? oh, geez, I have no idea. You monster, you Frankenstein's monster. Ah. From, because uh, Mary, Shelley Mary Shelley witnessed mm-hmm. these galvanic experiments and thought, oh, electricity can bring something into uh, a semblance of life. Oh, okay. that's, that's a brilliant okay. connection. Okay. okay. That's pretty cool. Uh, so uh, from Galvani, we next moved to the early 1800s when Volta designed batteries far better than Leyden jars that could stimulate frog nerves and produce more specific contractions. And the fact that you didn't have to do it by having an electric rod shoved into the spine showed that you could just stimulate nerves with electricity to produce muscle contractions. So that was the concept of animal electricity. Um, Weren't too many advancements in the field for about 100 years until around 1920s when a method was devised to record the potential of a single motor neuron by connecting a bunch of needles, connecting concentric needles to an amplifier and a loudspeaker uh, to record the, not the screams of pain, but the uh, (laughs) electrical potential. You know what? Why don't we let the physiatrist tell us how this works? No, no, no. So this is... Wait, Avi, do you do this so that the EMG actually produces sounds to kind of... Yes, absolutely. We, we oh, use I thought the, you guys had waveforms. Yeah, the waveforms actually produce sounds. It's, it's pretty fantastic um, when we actually hear these compound muscle action potentials. And, and it's, it's, you can hear the actual crackle from the EMG. It's, it's pretty fantastic. Damn. So you don't yeah. even have to be looking at the screen. You can actually no. be listening for the sounds that you want to hear in order to say normal or abnormal. Yeah. So there was actually one of my uh, attendings back in residency. He was at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco, and he's a physiatrist, and he was blind. He couldn't see the screen. And he would actually do the EMGs with someone else helping. But <laughs> obviously, they, he's not sticking a needle in someone with, yeah, with yeah. you know. <laughs> but he would, someone would stick the needle in, and he would listen for the EMG, and that's how he'd write the report. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I I did not. My eyes are way opened right now. I thought that you were looking at a screen the same way that an electroencephalogram has brain waves that you'd see muscle waves like that and interpret those. This is so neat. This is so cool. So and and you probably could as well, but I haven't seen that. It's actually much easier to hear 
the waves. Okay, cool. So that's as early as 1930. Uh, within less than 10 years, around 1938, scientists Denny Brown described the fasciculation potentials and separated them from fibrillations. What do those two words mean? So those are different types of issues with muscles. So if you have fasciculation potentials, those are essentially something like when you feel like your muscle is spasming, like not like a big spasm, but like, have you ever had your eye twitch? That's like a fasciculation. Okay. And then a fibrillation is when you don't have um, any uh, any muscle or any nerve to that muscle. And that sort of just fibrillates. It just makes this sound that spikes every once in a while. So if you have muscle or nerve damage to a muscle, it causes the fibrillation. A fasciculation is a different type of nerve damage. So, so this is so a, a little bit like ventricular fibrillation. Yeah. So it's it's disorganized, it's denervated whereas the fasciculation is if there's like rhythmic actual signal from the nerve coming in um Something yeah, like twitch, that. Twitch, it, twitch. Okay. It, it, it's it's a lot more complicated than that, unfortunately. But okay. um, the fasciculation potentials, I think, I don't know if you go in, you'll go into this later, but one of the things that we found with fasciculation potentials are we see widespread fasciculation. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Potentials is with something like ALS, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease. So that is where we see a lot of fasciculations. So fasciculation mm. is more like, as you said, a spasm. Uh, some muscle or nerve is acting on its own without conscious direction or coordination. And fibrillation, as you noted, was a nerve isn't supplying. So the fibrils of the muscle are just sort of flailing around, not accomplishing anything. Correct. Okay. So that's, you know, cool. we had, we had learned that those were the two different kinds of things muscle fibers could do. And then around the end of world war two, Larrabee Hodes and German, not a random German, a scientist by the name of German began measuring <laughs> the, com <laughs> it, look, it's a fair assumption. Yeah, no, no, no. I totally get you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's probably Hermann, wouldn't it be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, usually if it's a double N, it's Hermann. Yeah. Ah, okay. Do you pronounce it hif or gif? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Larrabee Hodes and Hermann began measuring the combined potential of individual muscle fibers from the surface of the muscle after they would stimulate the nerve that supplied it. This became known as a compound muscle action potential, or CMAP. They also quantified the differences in CMAP waveforms, meaning they would see one kind if they stimulated the nerve above a site of injury, and a different kind of waveform if they stimulated the nerve below the site of injury. And they had a lot of war victims to test this device. Is this similar? Do you still look at CMAPs on these EMGs? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we use. So let, let's get into diagnosis before we carry on with any more historical stuff. How is a CMAP used if you want to, say, diagnose a problem? Is that only good for uh, trauma pain? Who would this be done on? 
and what can it tell you? It really depends on the, there's so many different diagnoses that we use it for. We would check whether someone has something good or something. I mean, if they have normal CMAPs, then we know that their muscles are working well. If they don't have normal CMAPs, then we know that their muscles aren't working well. So you could really use it for anything. Well, how specific? <laughs> like, can you look at a CMAP waveform almost like a textbook? Like, oh, that's an ALS CMAP. That's a multiple sclerosis CMAP. That's this. Or does it just tell you uh, this is a location of the nerve that's injured, but it can't tell you the kind of injury or the cause of it? Some of them will tell you the diagnosis depending on where you're at. What but are an examples will. of those? So say you know that someone has, and, and it has to be based on the patient, right? So you know someone has, for example, carpal tunnel, which is the, one of the simplest EMGs that we do. We do it all the time, right? And we see that their CMAP is decreased in their in the muscle that is supplied by the median nerve, which is the nerve that's injured from carpal tunnel. And we see that one of the muscles, the APB, is actually slightly denervated. So we'd see a change in the compound muscle action potential. We'd see fibrillations in that, in that muscle. And that's if we have enough motor damage. You can also just have sensory damage, which you wouldn't see any changes in the muscle action potential. So it's almost like a binary style code with ones and zeros for fasciculation, fibrillation, or do we get a, a mysterious two in there with nothing um, or normal? You can see how much of a muscle action potential or how much of the regular strength you could have. So if you move the muscle, you'll see a regular C-map and you can see how much of an amplitude you get. And if you get normal recruitment or not, we call it recruitment. So if you don't see normal recruitment, then you would know that, okay, there's a problem with that muscle. And you may not see fibrillations. You may not see the uh, fasciculations. At the same time, you might see something that is not normal in the sense that you move the muscle and it just doesn't have the same sort of amplitude or the same sort of recruitment that you would normally. And that can happen with multiple different things like a pinched nerve in the back, pinched nerve in the leg, pinched nerve in the, you know, something like that. Or if you have something centrally, you would see something different than if you have something peripherally, meaning that if you have something wrong with the brain or the spinal cord, you would see something different than if you had a peripheral nerve that's injured. And peripheral so, nerve injuries are most likely to be damage in arms, feet, hands, yeah, we've seen them everywhere, though. You know, I treat patients with injuries because they've had, you know, their ribs damaged somehow. And that's a peripheral nerve that's underneath the rib, right? Mm -hmm. So we see those as well. Okay. Um, so if you had to guess what animal has most helped the field, like if you had to pick a mascot for EMG. Eel. Oh, I like it. I like it. It's wrong, but I love it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I missed it. I missed it. What did he say? He said the electric eel. Ah! <laughs> so this is so cool as I'm listening to this, Josh, because this is very, very kind of typical of the study of neurology where you examine you're, you're always trying to localize in neurology, right? Where is the lesion? Is it in the brain? Is it in the spinal cord? Is it in the peripheral nerve? Is it in the synapse? Is it in the muscle? And this tool is so beautiful for that. I, I, I didn't realize the kind of capability that it had. I'm still blown away by the fact that you listen to the waveform. That's awesome. That's just <laughs> absolutely crazy. But from a standpoint of nerves and nerve development, there are two animals. One you already mentioned was the froggy frog mm -hmm. because you can do a lot with the froggy frog. One thing that you can actually do, which is really, uh, I mean, it's not great, but you can pith the frog. <laughs> you can knock out the spinal cord and, you know, kind of go from there and, and, you know, separate out what's the problem. But the other one that we use for all of this is zebrafish. We use zebrafish embryos and, um, you know, going all the way up to a mature fish to talk about neural development. But in order to develop a machine that could actually study even these tiny peripheral nerves, because nerves are fairly small. For uh, the most part. Yeah. So they needed to really, as yeah, we were learning what to do, 
they really had to get in there. And so the one creature that has contributed more than anything else to the advancement of the electromyographic field is the squid, uh, specifically the giant squid. But they use squid axons because they are unusually large. And when I say unusually, they're, <laughs> it makes me think of, they're neurons of unusual size. NOUSs? I don't believe they exist. Uh, but no, they're about a thousand times wider than their human counterparts. Wow. The two scientists who first discovered this, A.L. Huxley and A.F. Hodgkin, showed that sodium entry, that's right, half of table salt, into giant squid axons could propagate <laughs> and start conduction impulses, and that their release or extrusion restored resting potentials. So... Working with a giant squid, that is how the EMG machine was first developed. And this won the Nobel Prize for uncovering this for uncovering this mechanism. Yeah, yeah. This is the most basic thing that we learn in neurophysiology. Um, now, I'm sorry, Josh. I had, to, I had to just look up squid axon while you were talking. These things are massive. Like you can see them like coaxial cable for those yeah. of you who don't feel like looking at a google image the diameter was so big that it allowed hodgkin and huxley to insert voltage clamp electrodes inside the lumen by hand so imagine <laughs> taking those jumper cables for your car and shoving it into a nerve wrist deep yeah i i mean i'm sad for the squid <laughs> to find out this now, way but... now now <laughs> I want you to hold that image in your brain while Avinash tells us how many needles exactly are used in an EMG and how they're used. And then we'll circle back around to pain management. <laughs> so By the way, this is hold on. I, I just I don't want to put anyone off of EMG or the practice that Avi does because it's all sterile procedures. They're all really well done. So this is not one of these things where there's like, ah, the giant needle. So let me just preface. Oh gosh, no, we don't use squid axon needles. No, we use, we actually use like 30 gauge needles. So they're really tiny. If you know what, like acupuncture needles, roughly the size. Yeah. And um, so we put in one at a time. We don't do more than one at a time. And sometimes it depends on which extremity we're using, but usually it's about four to five pokes per extremity and depending on where we're going. So sometimes it's in the back, sometimes it's in the leg. Sometimes it's, we usually don't try to go in the foot and the hand unless if we really, really have to, because those are the parts that kind of hurt. But other than that, there are ways to actually make it a little bit less painful where we can spray some, cold solution before we actually poke the needle in that makes it a little bit more anesthetic before you put it in so oh, nice. we have ways to do, make it a little bit more comfortable for people now that tiny electrical current that's transmitted may result in a twinge or spasm which is usually i believe what people complain about as the pain component of this or do they complain more about the actual needles being inserted no it's actually the when you put the needle in and then it goes through, you feel a little spasm. And we actually can hear that as well. So not just well, the... Well, duh. Ouch! <laughs> so we can hear the muscle. <laughs> Muscles can say ouch? <laughs> yeah, they can. No, we actually... So when we're moving through the muscle, we can actually hear the muscle as we're moving through it. So not even when it's actually, you know, uh, when you're flexing or doing whatever to make the muscle contract. When you're actually moving the needle through the muscle, you can hear it. I guess initially it's a good sign if you see a twitch and you get an ouch because that's at least you've got basic function in terms of neurons firing and relating to the brain that you're like, okay, I can, I feel this going in type of thing. So normally we don't actually see anything. Oh, so when we're okay. going in it, we don't see any sort of twitches because gotcha. if you see a twitch then it's hyperactive and usually that's a sign of denervation or lack of nerve signals so you see some like hyper activity in the muscle and you see twitches when it's when you're just at rest got that's it, not got normal. It. okay all right got it so muscles that are denervated or don't have nerve input become hyperactive so yep sugar high like oh we have no more supervision everybody <laughs> do everything at once Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, no, Josh, this is our old. Uh, you remember the podcast ATP? dynamic? Yes. No. 
no. So ATP or energy is actually required for the muscle to relax, not to contract. So when you don't have a nerve signal going to a muscle, the normal thing for the muscle fibers to do is to actually shorten and freeze. So for instance, our kids that we have with paralysis um, or if they have spinal cord injury or any one of those things, you get contractures of the limbs, right, Avi? Yeah, have you seen rigor mortis? Thank you. That's what it is. That's that was my next thought. Is I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's why you have fry from cold dead hands because your muscles are naturally contracted and clogged. Exactly. Why can't we? Why can't we talk about living people? Because fun. it's fun to talk about dead yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> These are weird. <laughs> Interestingly, the same EMG signals that are used to diagnose. Uh, do you ever use them in treatment? Because I've got a really cool application. Oh, yeah, Botox. I use it for Botox. You when can patients... shock somebody's face into behaving better? <laughs> <laughs> so you get the signal from the muscles, right? So you actually can see when people have spasms where that spot is. So, for example, you just mentioned spinal cord injury, right? So someone has spasms from spinal cord injury. Right, which is you know their normal spot. So what we do is we put the needle into the area of maximal spasm, and then we shove Botox into there, and it calms the muscle down. Oh, and so you get relaxation. So this is not in the superficial muscles of the face to relieve wrinkles. This is actually to relax the the muscle. And do does a person then, even if it's somewhat denervated, does that relieve pain or tension? Oh yeah. Yeah, we oh, can okay. get we can get significant relief of pain with Botox. It's actually been used, you know, we talk about it in the face for wrinkles. We also use it in the face for migraines and it's uh Botox can be used I think there's 35 injections you do into the face. I know that sounds scary, but we use even a smaller needle for that than an EMG and we actually inject it all over the face and the neck. Oh, hold on. Yeah. Deep breath. Travel medicine does not endorse the use of Botox as a thing is that when you're at home for, you know, fun, recreation, whatever, please go see a licensed physician if you're going to inject bacteria into any part of your body. Thank you. Back to your regular programming. <laughs> yeah. Also known as onobotulism yeah, toxin right. A, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So really, I think we're really only familiar on the show with the cosmetic applications of Botox. What kind of thing? So you use it for migraines? Yeah, we use it for migraines. How bad does your migraine have to be before someone will suggest Botox as a treatment? Um, so you have to have, I think, qualification from, let's just take it from Workman's Comp <laughs> or the FDA, whichever one you want to take it from, is uh, 14 migraines per month. And that's either 14 migraines of, I think, like 30 minutes per month or eight migraines of one hour or more per month. And that, that would be the qualification for Botox. That is one hell of a punch card. What other things besides migraines can you use EMG to treat? So you can use it for, for actually treating the muscle spasm. So you actually go into the muscle spasm, as I mentioned. So I have a patient with, for example, she has myoclonus, which is a type of disease where the muscle just stays spasmed and continues to spasm. So we actually found the spot in her biceps and we injected Botox into it and she has less spasm. And then the needle shows you where to inject the Botox. Correct. It doesn't inject the Botox itself. No, but there is a needle that we have a, that we have something attached to that can inject Botox. So it's sort of a combination needle slash the EMG thing. Interestingly, so now we've learned about different things that it can treat. Did you know that EMG signals are also what's used to operate all the sci-fi stuff like the Lucand? It's being used for control commands for robotic prosthetics. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that they've used is the EMG signals for someone with like a amputation they can actually use the EMG signals from, from the upper part of the arm to move the bottom part of the arm. Now, are those signals kind of what gives people phantom pain? And is that something that you see a lot in your practice? So I do see phantom pain. 
we don't actually know exactly why people get phantom pain. It's more common with people that have had traumatic injuries. So someone that has a traumatic amputation can have phantom pain, but people that don't have trauma can also get phantom pain. It's just sort of random. That's interesting. I had never heard that phantom pain had more of an association with a specific kind. So you're telling me that if you have knowledge that you're going to lose a limb, that you are less likely to feel as though it is still there, as opposed to if it just comes as a surprise, like, oh, there goes whatever. Yeah, unfortunately, people with traumatic injuries, maybe it's the way the nerves are damaged or something like that. I don't know. But the people that actually have a traumatic amputation tend to have more chances of getting a phantom limb syndrome. So another thing that we do with EMG, just to preface that, is that if someone has an injury to a nerve in the periphery, we could actually use the EMG signal from that nerve, or we actually use something like a nerve conduction study, but not quite. So we actually go stimulate that nerve with a needle. So it's sort of a mixed EMG nerve conduction study type thing. And we use that to stimulate the nerve to find out where that nerve is and where the pain is going. So we actually try to reproduce the pain by stimulating the bad nerve. When we do that, we can actually put a stimulator on the nerve. You'd think a stimulator would cause more pain, but it actually reduces pain. So we find that nerve, put a stimulator on that nerve to reduce the pain that's going from that region. So that's called a peripheral stimulator. And we've used that for people with carpal tunnel syndrome and other things that actually have injuries to nerve in the periphery. Now, why does stimulating a nerve decrease the pain? Are you overloading it so that it just can't relay the signal anymore? Or are you giving it that control back so things can't run wild and free? We don't know exactly how this works. (laughs) And isn't that weird about so many things in medicine that there's so many things that we actually don't know how they work, but they still work. We think it blocks the signal that comes from the periphery to the brain. So the signal from the periphery or sensory signal will go from that area to the brain causing pain. So if we block that signal, somehow we're changing this the signal to the brain. Now, the other thing that can happen is that that signal that's coming from the periphery to the brain may actually go may actually be caused to be abnormal at the dorsal root in the spinal cord. So we can stimulate it in the periphery, or we can stimulate it at the spinal cord area, and we do get results for pain relief both ways. So we don't know exactly where we're getting pain relief, but we do get pain relief. And the other thing about electricity that's fun and interesting, and if you've ever stuck your hand in a... um, socket. That's not fun. We have different ways that we can stimulate with electricity. There are different wavelengths. There's different, there's different amplitudes, different pulse widths. All those things can change the way stimulation is and the way it affects the patient's pain. So this kind of goes into how we do spinal cord stimulators, but I think that's for a different whole topic. I think, Avi, you said the most interesting thing here, which is the most applicable. You're more interested in the expectation of the patient in terms of how bad they feel and when they need pain to be addressed or managed versus when they feel comfortable. So rather than universal scales, I mean, it it sounds to me like this is a very, it's quite a personal thing. Absolutely. And I think that is part of pain management and pain in general, where expectations are the most important thing. Like if someone has surgery, a lot of patients are not expecting to have pain afterwards, or they're expecting their pain to be better immediately. And one thing that we haven't done well in this country, as well as probably most others, is to explain to patients that, look, you're having surgery, you're going to have more pain. So you have to grit and bear it. And at least some of it, not all of it, but you have to grit and bear some of it. And the important thing with that is that when patients do have that pain, they don't expect to have instant gratification from something like an opioid. And I think that is very important with pain management and something we haven't talked about.
And that's a good that's a good suggestion, absolutely. So basically if you can set a person's expectations up, you can kind of um, you can kind of set yourself up for success rather than them being surprised and shocked. That is extremely important and I think we just don't do that enough. We have that, you know, when you do something else in life, you set up expectations for it. Like when you're taking a class, you expect to get an A or expect to get a B. And if you get a B, you're happy about it. But we don't do that with pain or with a lot of things in medicine. I think that's really important. Now that we've set the expectation for another episode on pain management, we're going to have to have you back. Yay! I can't wait, guys. That's This has been so much fun. <laughs> um, I, I bet you didn't know that you were going to, you know, come here and learn about how we went from like frogs to squid axons to modern yeah, and, energy. <laughs> and, and that Frankenstein is related to EMGs in some way. No, I, that, that was totally cool. So next time you have the, the little electrodes near the neck muscles, you could tell the patient, it's alive. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Join us next time for a continuing series on rehab. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Special thanks this week. Oh, yes. Uh, thanks again, Avi. Uh, our wonderful guest, Dr. Avinash Ramchandani. Thank you, Santos. Really appreciate you guys. And as always, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shots, find a country that's still open, plan a trip. Boy, this list is getting long. I'm going to start throwing <laughs> stuff in here. And when you've done all of that, happy travels. Bye, guys. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 